You want to do the show? Yeah, yeah, because I'll try to pretend I'm actually happy and cheerful. Crap. <laughs> There's a soundbite for you. So, you ready to go? Alright, here we go. Today is Sunday, February 28th, 2016, and this is episode 151 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me today, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hey, Jerry. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday to you, too. We're finally back on our normal recording schedule. At least for one week. Yeah. <laughs> We've been busy. That's right. So uh, just before we get in further, the uh, thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Past, present, or future. That's right. So uh, we have a couple of good stories tonight to talk about. Uh, hopefully some good discussion. The first one comes from databreachtoday.com, and the title is... Da-da-da, Anthem Breach, Lessons One Year Later. Hard to believe it has been an entire year. Actually, I think it happened at the beginning of February 2015 uh, since the Anthem Breach happened. Indeed. And this is kind of a retrospective lessons learned type article, which had some good good thoughts and, and uh, if nothing else, some good fodder for discussion. So um, you know, one of the points they, they bring up in the article is that the uh, the apparent method of attack was the theft of credentials of five uh, IT workers at Anthem. Um, and and they, they kind of go into, in, in this article, they go into a, a couple of different themes. So for instance, they point out that we really need to improve our ability to resist phishing attacks, which is the apparent method that these five people lost their credentials. And you know, I have to say, there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance for me in this in this article because it, on the one hand, they say, and one of the people the interview here says, you know, you, we have to get really aggressive at training our people to resist phishing attacks because even one phishing email can, you know, effectively sink our boat. And I, all I can think of is if you've come to the conclusion that a single successful phishing email can sink your boat. We've, as we've talked about kind of endlessly in the show, education's not the thing you want to rely on. Right. That, that indicates a lack of technical controls. Right. Yeah. And a business process uh, that's resistant to it. This is, you know, it goes back to a very similar concept to breach, you know, instead of breach, prevention, you know, breach containment in right. my mind. Same thing with phishing. It's going to happen. It's probably going to be successful. How do you minimize the damage? Right. As best you can. And it, it comes down to designing your business process and infrastructure with the concept of this attack methodology in place. So, you know, one thing that's interesting that came to mind for me about this first step was, I, I don't know if you saw 
some of the preview stuff on PCI DSS 3.2 that's going to get released soon. But one of them is requiring IT admins and administrative folks to have two-factor um, authentication into anything that's uh, processing cardholder data. That, that makes good sense. So, you know, occasionally like a stopped clock, PCI can be right twice a day. Uh, this is some of those things that, okay, fine. So if I'm worried about credentials being captured by the bad guys, then wouldn't two-factor authentication be a methodology to stop that yeah, to a certain extent? absolutely. And they do actually talk about that yeah. further further in the article. Absolutely. So we have hashed over and over and over again the concept of training, simulations, you know, user awareness training, how effective it is when it comes to phishing. I don't know if we want to necessarily retread that. I think there's a lot of money spent on both user awareness and phishing simulations. Depending on who you believe, phishing simulations are more effective, but nothing is 100% foolproof. Nothing. And as an arms race, I, I think phishing is going to continue to be one of our primary avenues of attack because it's effective right now and it's going to keep being effective. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so, so a couple of things, and I, I don't want to fully re-engage in the, in the discussion. You know, I, I think there is, I'm certainly not advocating that we should not train people. And I do think that the phishing simulations are effective. However, if you were to, if you talk to any company who runs these phishing simula simulations, and a number of them have done presentations at conferences, they will tell you that the success rate of people of a of a phishing campaign depends on factors such as time of day and day of week now that should tell us something very interesting right that the average person is more or less likely to fall for a fish at in given different circumstances you know we know from uh, uh, one of the gosh i can't remember the name of the um the publication, but there was a, <clears throat> a vice president who had woken up and she she got a fish from the Syrian Electronic Army and she looked at it on her phone and she fell for it, right? So if she were at her desk, you know, and I, I would assume that maybe she would have not fallen for it if she were, you know, fully caffeinated and had eaten and, you know, was more awake. And I think that's, you know, one of the one of the downsides to relying on training and and less on some kind of a control is that you know people people are not you know they're we're not hardwired to be effective all the time and and we have to we have to recognize that yeah especially when people are under stress right which most of us are and more and more yeah. every day so so we have to understand that that humans are fallible beings and so this is why no matter how effective your training is, no matter how effective your simulation is, the entire point of phishing is to attack that weakness, to attack that psychological and emotional weakness. And in general, it's going to keep working because we have that weakness and cannot get rid of it. And the bad guys are have unlimited attempts to figure out how to reference that weakness. We've got a new version of it going on right now where you've got folks emailing uh, various folks in HR pretending to be the CEO and asking for all the W-2s and tax information about employees, and it's working. 
Yep. Because why? It's tax season. That's right. So we inherently are going to keep fighting this problem, and I don't know that you're ever going to get rid of it fully with user awareness and training and that sort of thing in simulation. So this falls back to as best you can technical controls and as best you can assuming you will have a breach of this layer of, of this problem and how do you minimize and contain it. Right. I would say the other thing too is to look at opportunities for you know non-traditional technical controls beyond just you know the uh, another email filter or another phishing filter you know look, look at things like you know, maybe only allowing whitelisted websites you know so that you can't get to in, in the case of anthem uh, we we believe given some of the reporting that uh, part of the part of the attack was based on people getting phishing emails where the domain in, in, in one of the email links was W-E-1-1-P-O-I-N-T, uh, which was WellPoint, which is the new name for, or the former name of Anthem. Um, and, and so, you know, if you if you don't let your employees get to, you know, visit websites that aren't explicitly on a whitelist, you know, they can't get to that. So, Right. Um, but, yeah, but all those are all those are a trade-off. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So, um, so I guess we can we'll move on to the next control. One of them. This is a, I think basic, but worth mentioning again. Using a different antivirus on your endpoints that, than you do up in your network and on your email gateways. You know, so that you improve the likelihood <laughs> of one of them catching it. Uh, the only takeaway I'll have around that is make sure you have enough adequate staff to become experts in both of those systems and run them both adequately. I would rather take one vendor run well and two vendors run poorly. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Um, their next recommendation was to monitor privileged user activity, and they they specifically mentioned you know things like sequential database reads should be an indicator that something's going on. Because we know in this particular case it was a um, it was a big database that, that they pulled the data out of. The only thing I, I challenge about that is this seems like to be a bit of a signal in the noise problem, which is in retrospect it's really easy to identify a technical control that would have spotted the activity. But forward looking, would you have come up with that control? Well, that's a good. How do you baseline normal behavior? That's a good point, and they they do mention the concept of behavioral user behavior analytics, right. which, you know, I think has that same problem. But I, one thing I was thinking of is when you, especially if you are sitting on a mountain of PHI or, or some other data that is, you know, basically a giant liability sitting on a, sitting on a, a hard drive somewhere, you know, you, you really should take a step back and, and maybe you can't do this yourself and you need to bring in some other people to help you. But to think about... If someone were to break in, what would it look like? You know, what, what kinds right. of things would you see? And this where maybe a simulated attack from a third-party red team may come in handy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know a lot of organizations have their own red teams, but I do love the concept of going to a high-end external red team, giving them very, very few limitations, and really tapping into their creativity on attack simulation. Not just a pen test, but full attack simulation and see what they come up with. Yep. 
Yep, they do. They do uh, also mention two-factor authentication for your 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 uh, privileged users and detective controls like Sims. You know that that's pretty fundamental. Um, and one thing they do mention too is you know if you can't if you can't afford things like a sim or um, two-factor authentication, you should use managed services. And it reminds me, I think it was a Saturday Night Live skit where it was a parody of one of the uh, the TV financial planners, and and they were she was trying to give I can't remember which advisor it was um, w- was giving advice to this homeless person. And you know, she was basically saying, well, you know, you, you should pull some money out of your 401k. And, and like, I don't have a 401k. And, you know, you should you should uh, take some money out of your, your, your emergency checking account. Well, I don't have that. And, and I think that the problem is that there are a lot of organizations who, you know, who can't afford this stuff, even from a from a managed security provider or managed service provider. So. Um, I don't know what to do for them. And by the way, that is not a panacea. Here's the problem, especially with a sim. And this is something I've seen over and over and over and over again. Running a sim well is is more than just having it, you know, all the data feed in and looking at a console. You have to really tune that well to get a, value, a lot of value out of it. You have to understand what the hell you're looking at and what is normal for your environment. Right. And outsourcing sim management is a plus and a minus. I'll put it that way. Well, you almost always have to have a layer in your organization to sit on top of that that outsourced function because they they don't know who to contact for a particular for a particular device. So usually they're right. just they're just letting you know, you know, we saw something happen on this device and then you have to go figure out, well, you know, what what was it? Whose is it? And and so on. So, um, they also mention in here the, uh, um, which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting, uh, take is that HIPAA require, has a, a minimum necessary access requirement. And they, they brought up a good point that, uh, assuming that these five user IDs were all that was stolen, those five IDs had access to 80 million records. And you know, how do you reconcile? On well, the do one... we know if there was any interim steps? Well, we don't know. I mean, that's the you know that that's the the great unknown. Um, there, all, all we know is that there were allegedly five you know f- five IT worker credentials stolen, and those credentials were used to access the eighty million records. And the question I, I they raise in the article is, well, how do you reconcile? that with the whole minimum necessary requirement and they you know they bring up the point well maybe it was a network administrator or I mean, my they don't say it in here but my thought was it was probably like a database administrator um well maybe they had domain admin rights and the database was running on ms sql uh yeah obviously <clears throat> i mean to really do that right takes a lot of extra work and to really separate that that authority and those controls and those permission levels, it's a lot easier just to throw admin rights at people and not separate it. it when you think about how you're going to run your database and have it completely isolated from your domain admin, if you're running a MySQL, 
you can do it, but it takes a lot more discipline. Yeah, but you, I think the the challenge is you're not meeting the requirement. I mean, it's a sensible requirement, but how do, how can you claim to meet the requirement if you haven't implemented that kind of control? Well, my auditor didn't find it. I guess I'm okay. Well, <laughs> clearly. Until you get breached, and then then it's a problem, right? <laughs> um, they they also mentioned in here. Well, one of the like couple things. One was you really should consider whether you need all eighty million records as an example. Um, maybe you don't, and if you don't have it, it can't be stolen. Um, and then also, they point out the need to have a, a response plan. And I thought this was an interesting point that I hadn't really considered in the past. HIPAA has a requirement for dis- uh, notification of affected parties in a breach of 60 days. So Anthem had 60 days from the time they recognized they had a breach. Uh, and in the article, they point out that after two weeks, the attorneys general of a bunch of states were really getting cranky. And so even though you may have, under the law, 60 days, you're probably not going to have that much time in practice. And and so, you know, their their point is you should you should have a plan on uh you know that that short circuits as much of that as possible. Certainly. So um and that's something we talk about a lot. You should have a a plan ready to go for some sort of breach scenario or whatnot. Most the the one most likely to happen that's most impactful to your organization before it happens anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think if you're a, you know, if you're if you're a insurance provider sitting on a bunch of PHI, the the thing to plan for is pretty obvious there, right? Uh, so, you know, here's the other thing that I think about in these circumstances. The problem I often see when you're sitting on a bunch of PHI or whatever is that as people start doing their job they might need access to that PHI information and bits and pieces starts getting pulled out of the central databases and stored elsewhere. And in little bits and pieces, that's not a big deal, but you might be surprised if you started looking at <clears throat> everybody's desktops and file shares and whatnot, how much of that so-called sensitive data gets sprinkled around the organization as people do their job. Yeah, if you, were to, to watch out for. if you were to combine all the spreadsheets scattered around, you might have all of the the data that sits in your database. Right. That's a good point. Very good point. All right, so moving on. Our next story comes from DW.com, and the title is Hackers Hold German Hospital Data Hostage. And yes, this is a different story, right? So... Um, Actually, there's two reference to two different hospitals in Germany that got affected by uh, ransomware. Um, I, I thought it was pretty interesting that this hospital, Lucas Hospital in in Germany, they have a hundred servers and nine hundred devices. That's a really weird hmm. ratio to me, but uh, anyway. Uh, but they're all crypto lockered apparently. So um, there's I don't think there's any mention of how much money the uh, uh, the attackers are holding them for ransom for, but apparently the hospital is is trying to find a way to not have to pay. So uh, that there was another hospital mentioned in here, which uh, apparently they caught it pretty early and shut down some of their computer systems uh, before it had propagated to more than one 
file server, they were able to re- restore that from a backup and, and off they go. Um, you know, I, I, we talked the last time, last couple times, this is just a growing, a growing problem. And I, I was, I've been thinking about, you know, what are the ways that you tackle this? Because it, it is becoming a real big problem. And obviously backups are, uh, you know, it's hard, you can't, you can't overstate the importance of backups, uh, and inversioned backups, by the way, not just backups. Um, but, you know, I think there's, I think there are, uh, there's a kind of a growing body of recommendations on, uh, pre- preventing this stuff from getting into your systems in the first place. And, and so I just wanted to, to talk about some of those. Um, there, there was earlier, I think it was earlier this week, some information about disabling the execution of unsigned macros in Microsoft Office, which seemed like a really good idea. I don't know how often people need to create and run their own macros, but uh, it seems like a prudent thing. Um, I was was also thinking that we we should probably get a lot more aggressive at blocking file attachment types in email. And, and I know this is a but, her- but the heretical. Have to use it. No, I. In all seriousness, it makes perfect sense to us. Until an executive needs to send something it can't. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm with you. So what are you, gonna, you have to offer some other mechanism. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't I don't have a good answer for that. This, this and, comes back to a trade off, right? And keep in mind that ransomware could come in from a thousand different vectors. Yeah, but email. It's it, a lot of it's coming in via email. And my next recommendation was to uh, only allow access to websites via whitelist which is also heretical in today's day and age of allowing people to go check the sports scores and whatever else uh, and then obviously application whitelisting and given the given some of the things that have been happening with the hospital in California and then apparently this one here and then the discussion with um uh, SecureWorks a couple of weeks ago. I, I really think that we've got to do a much better job of protecting, for a Microsoft shop, right? Protecting the domain controllers and the domain administrators, and you know, doing things like you, you can't log in with administrative credentials on a system that has the ability to check email, you browse the web that sort of stuff dedicated whether it's a virtual system up in a up in a um, vmware type thing or or whatever but you know you need to to really isolate that stuff because you know all it takes is someone to be able to load a gpo into your domain controller and it's off to the races and now you're in the news yeah but we know you hate domain controllers well you know they i bet i bet mandiant Mandiant's revenue is directly proportional to uh, the penetration of of Active Directory. So, but it can be a force for good as well. <laughs> well, it is, and and that's why it's so popular, right? I mean, it's from a from a pure IT perspective, and even from a security perspective, there's a lot of benefits to being able to remove 
or lock an account and you know single point provisioning and all sorts of all sorts of things but i i think that you know historically we just have not really understood the downside and we don't manage the downside until you have to call mandate and then you understand the downside that's true uh, so moving on to our next story, which comes from Krebs on Security. I thought this one was absolutely hilarious because of all of the shirts that say Krebs is my IDS. And here was a case that uh, Krebs was an IDS. And the title is Breached Credit Union Comes Out of Its Shell. So uh, so yeah, Krebs called, this, uh, called up this coastal central credit union in Eureka, California and told them that... Uh, they had been owned. Uh, their website had a uh, remote access, or actually a web shell, I guess it's called, and um, you know which was publicly so it accessible. Had, had, it had WordPress. Uh, no, it had Joomla. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> I was close. Carry on. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, it had a web shell which apparently was was pretty easy to access and uh so krebs called him up and said hey um you got a web shell and they basically hung up on him he called back a little bit later or actually he he checked the next day uh still there called him up again and uh the 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 it person he was talking to gave him the runaround even though he said you know i'm brian krebs i'm your ids of course you are yeah prove it buddy well, Brian even tried to get him to apparently go to uh you know go to the go to the website you know the the subdomain or subdirectory yeah, on the like website. Yeah, a phishing scam, <laughs> trying to rickroll him. Go to your own website, and eventually, I guess some. But, but seriously, think about it for a minute. Think about the fake support scams, and how similar this may sound to those. See, this is actually a backfiring of our skeptical training of how do you authenticate this is real? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so so here's the here's the point that it, the re, the whole reason I wanted to bring this up is that and I've had this and I think many of us in the IT field have had the same experience where we've notified an organization of a some kind of a security problem and we never hear anything back and it never gets fixed. And it, it's hard for me to reconcile in my mind how on the one hand we bitch and moan about how hard, you know, how, how difficult security can be. And at the same time, someone's coming to tell you that you have a problem and <laughs> you're, you're, you're not heeding it. And, and so I think this probably deserve some thought you know how how do you admit and, and i do think it makes sense to be skeptical i'm not i'm not saying that you know i'm not i'm not knocking that um but if someone calls you up and says you have a problem on your website you may want to give it some you know give it a look fair and, enough and, and that's and and also don't run joomla on your website if you're a bank or wordpress yeah well, coming from the guy who runs WordPress on his website, yep. All right. So, our um, our last story. Oh, and, oh. and if Brian Krebs calls you, believe him. <laughs> yeah. Especially if he keeps calling. <laughs> if he keeps calling and emailing, yeah. And, oh, you know what was funny? Uh, in, in one of the – I think it was the second person he talked to um, – 
you know, Brian basically said, I, I really like someone who is authorized to talk to the media because I'm going to write this up. And the, the guy says, well, I hope you do write it up. Click. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here it is. So yeah. what was also funny is uh, later when he finally got through there, a VP called him back <clears throat> and apologized for the runaround, said everybody in his department were regular readers of his blog of Crabs on Security. Crabs on Security. Quote, I was hoping I'd never get a call from you, but guess I can call cross that one off my list. <laughs> That's right. Ah, uh, craziness. And uh, I, I think... Uh, I'm trying to see. It was as of last night. That website was their website was still down. I'm checking again. Oh, it's but back you know, up. This brings up an interesting point. Let's say you're a fairly large organization, and some third party like Brian Krabs wanted to contact your organization and explain this. Depending on what you do for a living, especially if if your company is not an IT company, they're likely to get some sort of random customer service person who probably has no training or knowledge whatsoever of IT stuff. They have training and knowledge around whatever it is the company does. Let's say you sell vacuums. Right. So how exactly is that going to go down for you when somebody calls in and, you know, says, hey, your, your website is, you know, compromised in XYZ way and, you know, the vacuum repair salesperson on the phone is going to go, ah, uh, whatever, dude, you want to buy a vacuum? <laughs> it's, it's a good point. We hear, we hear anecdotes about that all the time. People trying to call in and report a problem that, you know, I, I think a couple of things. One is you ought to have, you know, the standard, you know, abuse at and security at email addresses go to somebody who makes sense. You should have minimally a process that accommodates people calling and reporting problems in in some way because you know that people are going to fish you through it, right? I mean, it's just they're going to send Absolutely. you malware, they're going to they're going to try to fish you uh, but you're also going to get legitimate probably get legitimate things and when you do get a legitimate complaint, it's probably important that you pay attention to it. And and so, you know, you ought to think about how you do that. It's not a, you know, it's, I don't think this is an overbearing process. But to your point, you know, if you have a call center, you know, if someone says, hey, I'm calling to, uh, you know, I'm calling about a problem on your website, you know, you, you should, there should be something in their, in their flip book that says who, you know, how to handle that. Right. So. Agreed. Anyway. It's, it's an interesting thing. It may be something worth testing with your own organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, both ways, right? I mean, both from an attack perspective and from an actual reporting perspective. So, all right, moving on to our last story for tonight. This one comes from ICS CERT, which is a part of the U.S. CERT group. It's the Industrial Control uh, CERT. And uh, they released this past week their, you know, quote, final report on the attack against the Ukrainian power system that happened back in December. And at, at the time, and really up until very recently, there was lots of reports about the black energy malware being used and black energy was being delivered to the, uh, uh, you know, to these power companies via infected Word docs or, or Microsoft Office documents. And one of the important findings in this is that 
there's really no clear indication that black energy had, while it was actually there, there's no clear indication that black energy was actually leveraged. So, or, or if it was how it was leveraged, um, they, uh, some of the details are here are pretty interesting how there were multiple, apparently multiple different facilities like, uh, you know, central facilities and substations from multiple different power companies were all affected at the same time or roughly within the same time, they say within 30 minutes. So it was, it seems like it was a pretty well coordinated attack and the attackers apparently used what they, what they kind of describe as less sophisticated tools, right? So they, they, uh, clearly had stolen a bunch of uh, credentials. So they were logging in with uh, logging in through VPNs. They, um, uh, they had set some of the computer systems, which were attached to UPSs. They connected to the UPSs and scheduled the UPSs to power off, um, which was nice. Um, they loaded corrupted firmware onto some of the uh, USB to, I'm sorry, this not USB, the serial to Ethernet convertible converters, which you know a lot of the industrial systems need. You need to uh, talk serial to, and and so it goes. And uh, apparently, within a half hour, uh, they the attackers had connected remotely to a number of different facilities and trip breakers. And uh, I, as they said, up until uh, even uh, even now these organizations haven't really recovered. They're still running in a, you know, in a manual kind of a manual override type mode. And apparently the, a lot of the uh, computer systems that were involved in this state, uh, the attackers used the kill disk malware to overwrite, which I assume is why they're still, uh, still down. However, I would think that maybe they would be back up by now, but they did give some, uh, you know, some really basic, advice on how to avoid this things like don't use a modem to connect to your <laughs> to your thing i mean we the we, listeners could not see my eye roll that went all the way to the back of my head we 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 learned that one in uh in war games didn't we <laughs> i mean that's seriously that one's been around for a while um <laughs> they they, uh, they they make a reference to using application whitelisting and they point out that in in industrial control settings, application whitelisting is probably a really easy deployment because That's they don't a perfect application. Yeah, they don't change much. It's really a kind of a single purpose type thing, and and so uh, that should be pretty simple for AWL and and then also to to make sure you have a, a more robust authentication scheme for 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 remote access connections. Now, wasn't there some Sort of back and forth on this one. Originally, they when the original story came out, I remember it sort of saying, hey, hackers took down this power grid. And then yep. there was a denial. Like, no, 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 that wasn't hackers. That was something else. Right. Now we're back to saying, yep, it was hackers. So that's kind of interesting to me that, that there was that sort of back and forth on the PR aspect of this. Well, I, I think you're right, but there was a nuance. <clears throat> and the nuance was that... The initial reporting was that malware took down the power grid, and and then the rebuttal was no malware didn't take down the power grid, 
and and in fact, malware kind of took down the power grid. <laughs> you know, it 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 enabled. I think the I think the point is it enabled uh, manual intervention. So there, this was not uh, if according to this reporting and other reports I've read, this was not the result of an automated attack. Like there were actual right. people with hands on keyboards doing stuff over the course of this attack. So, and I think that was the, I think that was a lot of the, the consternation was that the original discussion was, oh, it's, it's just malware. They got infected with a virus that kind of like the Natanz Iranian facility, you know, I think that right. was the initial uh, way it was envisioned. And that's not what happened here. The other thing I thought that was interesting is at the end of the article <clears throat> points out the attackers also flooded uh, Power Authority's call centers with phone calls to confuse customer service representatives and to prevent real customers from getting through. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it was I, – I don't know how many how many customers they had uh, – they have in U, the Ukraine, but there were only 225,000 customers impacted. And I know here in Atlanta, a good thunderstorm can do more than that. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that – you know, obviously the Ukraine's a lot smaller than the U.S., but I don't know. You know, is that ten percent, fifty percent, ninety percent? I'm I'm not really sure of the, you know, how many customers there there are there. So, not a good sense of scale, I suppose. Is what I'm what I'm saying. Indeed. So that is the show. I, Indeed. I appreciate everyone's time. Thank you, Mr. Kellett. No, thank you, and uh, we'll try to do these more on Sunday when we're not as tired and wiped out, And although today I'm just tired and cranky. But you know what? I manned up, and I showed up anyway because we do it for you guys. That's right. And showing up is half the battle. And the other half? Knowing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. We, fi- we, fi- we finally figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, love you guys. You're the best. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to the people who have donated to our Patreon campaign. Uh, always appreciate that. It, it uh, certainly helps. I'm going to have to start rehosting the uh, the show pretty soon because we are we have more than a few downloads now. And, you know, maybe I can get my mom to back off on the number of downloads she she does. But, you know, anyway, I'm not even going to say the your mom joke that came to mind. Good, good, good. You can uh, you can find the links to the stores we talked about tonight on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kell on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Have a great week. Hello. Yo. Hello, this is Steve with Windows Support. You Hi, have Steve. viruses on your computer that I must fix. Well, thank you so much for calling, Steve. Here, let me give you my passwords. <laughs> Too much llama porn. <laughs> my mother warned me about that. She she had a lot of foresight. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.